Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Maybe 17 years ago, as I was doing orthopedics, I just started to feel like, oh my God, these people, much like myself with my injuries, never really get better, right? Like you kind of get them sort of better, you know, and if a broken leg, you can fix a broken leg and come back. But, you know, most injuries sort of just end up being ongoing nagging problems. Dr. Elizabeth Yerth is the co-founder and medical director of Boulder Longevity Institute, Colorado. She's been providing tomorrow's medicine today since 2006. What does that actually mean? She's at the forefront of anti-aging slash regenerative medicine. Think 1985 science fiction comedy drama film, Cocoon, but in real life. She's the most extensive professionally accredited individual I've ever had on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Seriously, she has like multiple paragraphs of medical industry certifications. It was actually a little bit intimidating. Having been an avid skier since childhood and plagued by repeated debilitating injuries, Dr. Yerth initially sought a solution by pursuing a career in orthopedics or surgery concerned with the musculoskeletal system. Eventually, stonewalled by those very same frustrations and a system which appeared to be counterintuitive to a patient's complete rehabilitation, Dr. Yerth effectively chose to go maverick, doubling down on epigenetics and other innovative treatments in combination with a holistic approach to wellness. This is a seriously valuable conversation for anyone interested in living well, improving their lifestyle, or optimizing your you. I even managed to sneak in a little keto diet question from past Doing Epic Stuff podcast guest, Sylvie von Douglas Itu, the Muay Thai legend with over 260 professional fights and no signs of slowing down. Epic. Good morning. Well, good morning. My time, Dr. <laughs> Yerth. What, what time is it over your part of the yes. world? 4.15 p.m. here. P.m. Beautiful. I've still caught you during the, the standard working, the standard business right, exactly. hours. <laughs> right. Well, my standard business hours go pretty long. so I bet. Okay. I bet. <laughs> uh, I thank you very much for your time today. I'm super excited to have you on this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Glad to be here. Uh, it's, it's always just a thrill for me to meet new, interesting people, which is kind of a big reason for me doing this is like I have all this mission and stuff going on, but I also like have a personal interest in, in people just pursuing their passions and, and doing interesting things. So I, I, it just reminds me when I hop on the camera with someone like yourself, who's so you know specialized and has such an interesting professional, uh, I guess, vocation that, that how lucky I am to be able to do this. And, and one of the silver linings of the, of this whole COVID situation is everyone getting so comfortable. You get to meet all these people. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's outright. Like it never would have happened otherwise. Right. So it's so funny because I was just, you know, I've done over the past now over a year, right. That we've been COVID doing zoom meetings. And I was just at a live big biohacker conference. I was lecturing at this big Dave Asprey biohacking conference. And I met all these people that I had actually only met through zoom but I've met numerous times through Zoom. So you actually felt like you really knew each other. And then all of a sudden you saw them in like 3D live. And it was like, but it was very cool because you actually really felt already like you were, you know, really good friends, even though we'd never, ever seen each other in person. You know? <laughs> That's so but strange. Was, you know, like, like, I guess the, 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 the naysayers are a bit 
I guess you can get Zoom burnout, right? I guess people, if they're spending their entire days, especially like my background's the marketing industry and a lot of that is meetings and I can see how yeah. too much of it can probably fry your brain a little, this like two-dimensional trying to understand emotions through a screen and all that sort of thing. But I think the yeah. positives definitely outweigh the negatives. You know, what, what a wonderful age we live in that we can do this yeah, sort of stuff. I agree. Stuff. We've gotten to meet people all over the world that we never would have met. You know, and I've got patients now in Israel and Canada and, you know, Australia, New Zealand and London, you know, that that probably would have never really happened had we not had this kind of, oh, wow, we can actually do this stuff mm. and not and not be in the same room. So, so you're right. There's been actually some pretty cool things. And I, I have met people from all over the world that I never would have met before. So mm. it is, you know, I think there's there's definitely goods to it, Personally, yeah. you know. I don't like people that much. So it's, it was the whole light lockdown thing for me was kind of nice. It worked out well. <laughs> for introverts. It was like a little oasis, uh, get some projects done, minimal yeah, exactly. chat time. Like, Oh, you don't have to go out. Good. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> now, Dr. Earth, can I just say you're looking ripped. You have some very impressive guns. I'm feeling a little bit envious. Well, can I just, well, before we you. get into anything too deep, what is your, what's your fitness regime like at the moment? How are you keeping in shape? Cause you look in shape. Oh, I, you know, I, I think one of the big things, cause I, I won't say I have some, you know, not some, some great tidbit of information. I, I, I'm really, really, really consistent and religious in my workouts. I am up every morning at 4am and at the gym, you know, before five and I, I meet somebody there. So that keeps you motivated. So there's no, never a day where you can go, I'm just going to sleep in. Cause you know, you got a training bud there, right? You got a little training. Have, bud. Yeah. So I have a, I have a friend I work out with every day. And so, so, so basically three days a week we go and we lift really heavy weights. And then a couple of days a week, I do a little bit more circuit training kind of stuff. And one day a week I do yoga and one day a week I do a little more, you know, longer cardio stuff. So a lot of it's kind of variety and tossing things up, but honestly, I think it literally is. I don't, you know, I'm traveling. I don't care what it is. I almost never miss a workout. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and, and so I think consistency is such a huge thing. You know, people mm. are like, well, I work out really hard, but I watch them and, you know, they're like, well, I'm asleep in today or, you know, and I think that that's really a big piece of it. And I think the other big piece, honestly, you know, what I tell people is that people get into really ruts with exercise and that doesn't work. You know, our bodies adapt to things really fast. So if you go every, Every time you go to the gym and you're doing the same leg workout, the same arm workout or the same thing, then your body adapts to it and it stops changing. So very rarely are we doing the same workout. We're always doing something different. We're tossing it up. We're changing it around. We're doing something different. And I think that that is a big piece of it too, honestly. It's a big piece of keep your body guessing what's going to happen and it adapts more easily. Do, do you... you know? Are you really strict with the type of workouts you do each week? So do you have it planned out? Like you're like, I've got to get my three strength done. I've got to get my one cardio. Or do you just kind of, you, do you allow yeah, a little bit play of flexibility around. I mean, there? in general, you know, you know, some Monday we go to the gym, we'll do chest and triceps. Tuesday we'll do legs. Wednesday we'll do back and biceps. And Thursday and Friday I do kind of a, a you know, a lighter weight mix of those in a, in a in sort of more fast fashion. But that can change around, you know, if I'm traveling or, you know, lecturing or something like that, and you're in a different gym and, I'll toss it around. I'm not going to be completely diligent. It's mostly getting there and doing it. Right. And I really think even people who are really diligent about their workouts, oftentimes they find excuses, you know, and I think that that's such, I, I honestly think that's such a big key, but, mm -hmm. it, but really is to it, it. I, I really think I see people every time they go to legs, they're always doing this, 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 right. And every time they do their biceps, they're always doing this, 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 and we'll just change it. I've, I've been, you know, I've trained people. I've done a lot of different things. So, 
So I know a billion different exercises and almost never one week to a next are we doing the same thing we did two weeks before or a week before that. Because the muscles are so adaptable. So I think that that is honestly, when people ask me that, I, that's kind of my advice is that you, I really think people get into sort of ruts because I don't go to the gym for two hours a day. I mean, work out an hour a day, you know, so my, my workouts are in and out in an hour done. You don't need to huge, you know, these big, huge, long workouts. You just need to keep your body guessing what's going to happen. And I think that that's how you get your body to change, honestly. Mm. You know? I, I, there's so much power in that. I think it, it also is how you get your mind to enjoy something that, for a lot of people, they find really, really challenging to get motivated about. Yeah. If it's always the same thing, it's right. not exciting. Like, right. You get bored. You get right. about that? Like, but that's true of life, and right? Everything you do too, right? It's like if every day you're doing the exact same thing, it gets tedious. Nobody can do the exact same thing every day and not start to get a little bit discouraged with life. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's the cool thing about what you're doing, right? You're meeting all these different people. You're talking about something different all the time. And we know that that's how we keep our brain sort of turned on too. So our brain needs to be exposed to something new and different all the time to grow and change and learn and stay young. So I think right. that that's true. It's true with diet. It's true with exercise. It's true with our brain. It's true with, you know, what we do. You always have to be doing something different and learning something new. Yeah. Very cool. Good, good words of advice. I'm, I'm big on lumosity at the, for the last year. I've just yeah. been trying to get up and hit lumosity for 15 minutes, even 10 minutes each morning. Yeah. Just and- that brain training man, I'm loving it because I'm finding little things like driving the car and being able to visualize the map of where I want to get to is coming a lot more clearly and quickly. And I'm like, that's an amazing, that's cool. yeah, tangible that outcome. That. Like just from yeah. doing five minutes in the morning, pressing these buttons and thinking a little bit. I, I right. love that we have access to that. Right. Just making your brain doing do something, be aware of something it wasn't. You know, people, people lots of times, and we'll kind of get into, you know, the whole longevity field, but people think, okay, I'll take this supplement. That's you know, what's called a nootropic. It's a supplement that's supposed to turn on your brain. If you do things like that, but you don't do something to stimulate that part of your brain, it's not going to do much. Right. So, so those kind of behaviors, learning to play the guitar, even if you're 50 years old or, you know, something that's completely different and out of the ordinary for you, keeps your brain from getting old, keeps your brain, you know, so it's, it's always activating new parts. And so you can do things that are really important for your health and important for your brain. You have to add to that, that you're not going to grow your brain or change your brain if you don't give it something new to do. So, right, you know, right. you so know. even like, for example, let's say steroids, if a guy wanted or a girl wanted to get huge and wanted to start using steroids, you, if you just took steroids and did nothing, you just got steroids in your system. You're not going right. to explode without, right. you're, not, you're still right. going to lift weight. Right. Yeah. In fact, you know, if you just took steroids and didn't actually go exercise, you would just get sort of big in general, right. you get <laughs> fatter, you get bigger. Huge. I mean, you would just get sort of bigger and you would, you would probably, you, you know, put on a little bit of muscle, but you don't have to put a lot of fat on. You yeah. would just look like one of those sort of, you know, kind of those big old football player guys who don't know. They're just, yeah, got big, it. Retired, you know. retired quarterback. <laughs> retired, right. Retired quarterbacks you know, <laughs> who are still eating the way they did in football. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You always have to be, you know, stimulating your, your brain and your body to do something new. Mm. Yeah. You know? I love it. All part of the growth mindset, which I'm, I'm super fond of and a big champion for. Um, Dr. Yerth, I'd like to, before we go too far into specifics of longevity and which, you know, super exciting and, and great to be able to talk to someone who is an authority on that. I'd like to, as I kind of like to do is understand a little bit better about where my guests have come from. So I'm just going to read this little bit that's from your bio, this little snippet says, as an athlete herself who has dealt with numerous injuries, 
Dr. Earth is thrilled to share with her clients all of the innovative, life-changing treatments that are on the cutting edge of medicine. So what I'd like to sort of unpack a little bit with you first is your experiences as an athlete, which appear to have been sort of a catalyst or a bit of a North Star for your then professional journey. And as we see so often in life, you know, what happens outside the boardroom can cross pollinate to what happens inside the boardroom. So I love these journeys where it's kind of like, I found this and then I riffed on it professionally and I went down this yeah. crazy rabbit hole and now I'm the, I'm the authority yeah, on right. longevity. So yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about your sport and injuries journey. If, if you could talk about that, please. Yeah. So I, I did kind of get into this, this field a little bit in kind of in a roundabout way. So my, my background really as an athlete was, was, you know, I, I was a pretty big skier and tore my first ACL when I was probably 16 and my second ACL when I was then 20 and then I tore another ACL actually when oh, I was geez. pregnant and my, you know, and then, so, you know, we're now talking four or five times. Finally, the last time I tore my ACLs, I actually didn't even fix them. I'm like, screw this. I'm not having another surgery. I'm just going to live with no ACLs and brace my knees. So I kind of was in that injury realm, you know, and, and early age, and that's kind of what got me into actually what my medical field was, which was more orthopedic sports medicine. So I went through all my training with orthopedic sports medicine, did a lot of sports medicine, worked with a lot of high level athletes and, and college athletes, um, grew up in Colorado, but kind of trained out in California for a long time. And then, and then I guess almost 30 years ago now came back to Colorado, basically to raise my kids, have a family because my parents were here and they could help me out. So came back here, you know, was in a big orthopedic practice and maybe 17 years ago, as I was doing orthopedics, I just started to feel like, oh my God, these people, much like myself with my injuries, never really get better, right? Like you kind of get them sort of better, you know, and even a broken leg, you can fix a broken leg and come back. But, you know, most injuries sort of just end up being ongoing nagging problems. You get them somewhat better, but nobody will come back and say, yeah, as good as it, as good as it was, right? And then something else falls apart. And as we get older, it's, it's more and more. In fact, one of my old partners, one of my dear old partners from, from when I first came out here, um, he has this quote with his older patient. He said, well, you know, after 50, it's just patch, patch, patch. And, and I thought, you know, well, why? You know, why do we have to be that way? So I started really exploring if I actually make people healthy, then if I fix something, will it actually get better? So I started learning a little bit more because in orthopedics, it's kind of a, you know, it's focusing on a joint, right? And so right. I started learning a little bit more about how our bodies are affecting our recovery. And so I went back and actually did, I'd already done a fellowship in sports medicine and a fellowship in spine medicine. And, and so I went back and did a fellowship in, in anti-aging and regenerative medicine. And I started kind of incorporating that into my orthopedic practice. I was like, okay, well, let's look at your labs and let's see what we can do to make you healthy. And let's try and get your hormones optimized because that's going to make you heal better. And it worked. People would actually start to get better and they'd feel better and they wouldn't have so many injuries. Mm. You know, if we optimize all their hormones, we got things right. But it was really difficult to do that in my 15 minute orthopedic visits. And, you know, and, and so I was trying to do this kind of whole, you know, whole body and, and, you know, let's look at nutrition and all that kind of stuff. And I, and really these are 15 minute appointments designed to stick steroids in your knee. So, right. you know, the system so was, wasn't set up to, to wasn't set up for that. So we actually, yeah. So 17 years ago, we opened Boulder Longevity Institute and actually kind of wore both hats for a long time. I actually saw, I had my orthopedic practice and I had Boulder Longevity Institute and I'd go do orthopedics by day. And then I would come here and do more what I considered real medicine all, all evening. Oh, and, gosh. um, and then in February, last February, and really kind of maybe 
promoted by the fact that you know, last year I, I lost both my parents. They both passed away and mm-hmm. started getting this like, God, you know, life is too short. Um, I can't be doing all this. And my orthopedic practice had grown with a lot of people who were much more into just see patients as fast as you can, make as much money as you can. I thought, okay, this isn't going to work. So in February, we just brought all the sort of clinics together. So now Border Longevity Institute does both kind of health-focused medicine, but also a lot of regenerative orthopedics. And, and I think unlike a lot of longevity doctors who don't really think about orthopedics as part of longevity, we sort of have tried to really bridge the two of those and say, you know, your sore knees and your sore back are all the same disease spectrums as your bad heart or your bad brain. They're all parts of aging that we need to stop. And, and so, so, so now our focus is let's get people healthy. But sometimes if you have horrible arthritis in your knee, you also have to add in some regenerative procedures, things like that. So we do a lot of that here too. So it's kind of an interesting kind of niche way around. Um, and, and so now I, I would say, you know, my practice kind of combines trying to get people healthy and we have a lot of people who just come to us for orthopedic issues. Mm. And I always try and sit down with them now and still explain to them that your orthopedic issue is just the same as, you know, your, your worn out brain, your worn out joints are the same as your worn out heart. So we're trying to really teach that kind of word because I think when people think about health and longevity, their, their joints are sort of a different part. They sort of just think, oh, joints wear out, right? You had injuries, your joints wear out. And yet people don't think about the brain that way, right? They don't think, oh, you, you used your brain too much. It just wore out, right? Or your heart, oh, your heart beat too much. So it wore out. But for some reason with your joints, that's what they think. Oh, I, I really, I just ran too much. So my joints wore out. That's always the narrative. Always. Right, it's always the narrative, right? And that's not true. I mean, nor is it true that just because you're, you're heavy, your joints are going to be worn out. I mean, I have really huge bodybuilders in my practice who have 300 pounds of load on their knees, but they're fine because they have very low inflammation and they're all muscle. And then you have a 300 pound woman who, you know, is all fat. Well, she has pain in her knees because she's in a highly inflamed state. So we know that all these disease processes kind of come down to sort of a low grade chronic inflammation that in reality is killing you in a whole lot of ways. So we're really trying to get that word out to understand that, you know, your knee pain and your back pain are there because you are inflamed and you are, you have issues that we need to address. So that's kind of how I got down this road. And, you know, um, and so it's sort of a, a little different way around because most docs who do get into longevity don't come from an orthopedic realm. In fact, orthopedists are kind of Neanderthal, right? They're, <laughs> they're a little bit more, I've got my hammer and screw and I'm just going to fix things. Um, mm-hmm. And again, there's some things that you break your leg and you need screws put in it or a plate put in it that, that needs surgery, but most things don't need to be surgically fixed and they're going to do better by getting you down that health road. Mm. So long answer to that question, but that's how I got here. <laughs> no, like, look, I think it required the additional context because there's, I mean, you're only just absolutely skimming the top, top, top of the iceberg as to the the huge amount of depth that goes into any one of these topics. You know, I, I becoming a GP is a hugely massive time undertaking and you're specializing across multiple areas of specialization, then trying to connect the dots and provide sort of a holistic solution that you can describe that in under five minutes blows my mind as it is. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting, Mike, is that you kind of say, okay, there's all these different diseases. And so, you know, you've got somebody who specializes in liver and somebody who specializes in heart and somebody who specializes in gut. And yet when you start to look a little deeper, so my most recent fellowship has been um, 
to something called seed scientific research and performance. And it's actually a fellowship in cellular medicine. One of the things we're learning is that you can kind of take every one of these diseases back down to a dysfunction at the cell level. And if you fix that, all of these diseases get better. So it may well be that that, you know, it's not that the heart is, is one disease. You need to know everything about the heart and the brain is one disease. You need to know everything about the brain. It may well be that you need to understand the dysfunction that's going on at a very cellular level. And that's where this whole longevity piece comes in is that think of every one of these diseases, right? They're, they're all the biggest risk factor to every single disease, dementia, cardiovascular disease, gut disease, joint disease, the one risk factor across the board to all those is age. So mm -hmm. every one of those diseases, you are much more likely to have when you're 70 than when you're 30, right? Sure. And it incrementally goes up like this. So if we really focus on what's causing aging, as opposed to what's causing each of these diseases, then you should be able to tackle every one of those diseases. So that's kind of what we're getting down to in this field of you know, more cellular medicine, is that what we have to do is go way back to your little cells and fix them. And if you fix them and get them back to where they were when you were 20, then the other processes should follow. Mm. So it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting that you don't really have to know everything about each of these organs. You have to know everything about the pathways at the cell level that created the dysfunction that got you to your heart or your lungs or whatever wearing out. But from a from a very limited understanding that I have of all of these things, it appears to me that you, you're trying to almost go against the grain in a lot of ways to do this because traditional medicine, uh, or, yeah, modern medicine, sorry, is effectively siloed. Everything is right. treated in silo. And right. what you're suggesting exactly. is, hey, this is this, that's not how we do things here. Right. Let's exactly. go to the source and everything will come good together. So <laughs> how has yeah. that been professionally? How are you perceived professionally given that so I can only imagine that people are very stuck in their ways professionally. And this almost seems a little bit threatening perhaps to some more traditional minded medical practitioners. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, medicine is disease focused, right? You go in and you have, um, and you have a heart attack and they say, okay, well, gosh, we have to open up your blood vessels and your heart and get your heart working again. And then we're going to put you on a cholesterol lowering drug and all will be fine. But that same process that caused the heart attack has caused damage to other blood vessels as well. And, you know, so you have to go back down to what caused the damage to the blood vessels. So again, everything kind of roots back, but you're right. Medicine is very, very disease focused. There's, you know, when you go to medical school, it's here's the disease, here's what started, caused the disease, and here's the treatment for that disease. And everything's very protocoled out, right? And that's the way we're taught in medicine. And, and doctors of, any, of every field are really reluctant to change, mm -hmm. you know? If, if you look at any other field, it's funny, I just gave this lecture and I was talking about, you know, kind of orthopedics. I showed a cell phone from 30 years ago, you know, and, and you weren't, you were too young to remember cell phone from 30 years ago. Really like <laughs> no, giant no, things that we had, like, we, that we had like in a suitcase, you know, I, I remember my, my, my friend's dad had one and the guys thought it was so cool. He carried it around a suitcase, you know, and <laughs> like, a you know, and right. So, <laughs> you know, and now you look at the cell phones, which are mini computers and this, this big, or your TV, look at the TVs. I mean, I was, you know, the generation we had like those rabbit ears with tinfoil on top and we had to move the tinfoil around to get them to work. And now there's these giant flat screens you put against the wall and they're, you know, incredible. And, you know, and so no other field will be except doing the same things for the past 30 or 40 years, nothing's changed. In medicine, I've been in practice, you know, for 30 years. 
and nothing, I'm doing nothing now I am, but most of orthopedics is doing nothing differently than what we did 30 years mm, ago. That hasn't I mean, is your field like that? I mean, there's no other field like that, right? Mm. There's no other field that does not change. But medicine is, you know, I think maybe because there's, you know, there's reasons there's, you know, there's a little bit of fear. Boy, I learned all this. I don't want to have to go back and relearn. I just spent freaking 12 years of school. I don't want <laughs> to have to go and learn anything fair. more. Right. You know, yeah. And so you're going to be very defensive of what you learn because that's mm -hmm. what you do. And you don't want to have to go relearn something. And then there's a very, you know, doctors in general are kind of arrogant. So there's an arrogance that goes along with that too. You know, a, 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 you, nobody else is going to tell me what to do. I know what's right and I'm going to do what I want to do. So I think there's a, there's a little bit of a fear and there's an arrogance. And then it's just the other thing is it really takes a long time for medicine to change, you know, partly because of regulations and partly because of money. Um, you know, so if you look at drugs like insulin, I mean, when insulin came out, it took 17 years from the discovery of insulin, which was a life-saving drug, right? You, know, you, you have type one diabetes, you're going to die unless you have insulin. So with this life-saving drug, that was proving efficacious. It took 17 years for it to get into clinical use. So there's this, this, this gap between, you know, research showing something that works and actually ever getting through the stages of going through all the processes you need to integrate it into the medical world. And there's a lot of, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's, you know, the, the FDA regulations and things like that. And some of it is, you know, is there's big money from people trying to block some things for going. So, yeah. so there's a lot of reasons that that sort of, you know, holds. So, so you're right. There's, there, there's more and more, you know, our, our physicians like myself are growing. I mean, I'm on faculty for this cellular medicine fellowship and we have more and more and more and more physicians who want to learn this, who realize there's a better way of doing things that we can make people healthy. And I think, you know, um, and, and then as you get a little bit older in your practice and you start getting frustrated with the fact that, wow, I'm really not doing all that much to help people. Right. I'm, you know, you know, I, I guess if you're, if you're somebody who can cut out a tumor out of somebody and you can feel very accomplished, but in general, a lot of what we do in medicine is exactly that's patching somebody together and waiting for the next thing to fall apart. Mm. And, and so I think there's, if you start looking at physicians who are sort of transitioning into more of a, a different way of thinking, a lot of them have just sort of hit this frustration level of, yep. you know, what I'm doing isn't really doing that much good. Um, Would you say the momentum is definitely shifting at this point though? Like I, I can see even over the last 10 yeah. years, the, oh, definitely. The, the rapid increase of broader, broad brush awareness of what longevity is and specialization it appears. It's definitely changing, but I won't give the credit to the medical profession. I'll give the credit to, to people out there who, you know, kind of more of the you know, the community, people wanting something different. And there's, you know, doctors are not particularly necessarily the brightest people that, you know, you look at the engineers, the people who develop things are certainly, you know, doctors can learn, they can study, they can memorize and they can regurgitate, but they're not particularly the inventors of the world. They're not the scientists. They're not the, yeah, they're not the scientists. They're not doing the research and they're, and, and they're not the engineers who are developing the, oh, here's a problem. I'm going to develop a really cool new way to do it. So those people are out there and they're looking at medicine going, wow, I think it's a better way to do this. And so now you're starting to see this spread partly because of we have the power of the internet and zoom and things like that. So you're starting to see people outside of the medical profession starting to go, wow, I, I was looking at this and this should really work here and starting to talk amongst themselves. So there's this growth of what we kind of call the biohackers, you know, the people who are, who are out there learning and saying, Hey, let's look at a different way of doing this. And so they're starting to spread the word. 
And, you know, the consumer ultimately rules, right? So if the consumer starts getting more and more demand for a different type of medical practice, then the medical practice has to change. Uh, you know, I mean, that's like that in every field, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you've been in the marketing world. If the consumer is demanding enough, you can't just stick and say, no, I'm going to keep doing it this way, no matter what my consumer desires. Yeah. So, I, so I will give a lot of the credit to that sort of biohacker world who has kind of spread that word. And those people coming back to the physician and going, hey, I read that this might be helpful. Can I try it? And if their doctor goes, no, then they go find another doctor who maybe will talk to them and work with them on it. So I think that that's where the spread is happening and why it's growing. It's an assistance from the consumer world. And that's going to eventually change things. So more and more doctors are like, oh, hmm. You know, because if there's fewer and fewer patients are going to start, to, I mean, that's my, my goal is that nobody goes and gets their knee scoped after 50. It's a stupid surgery that doesn't work. And, you know, and yet, you know, so you have to go out and, and, and the patients will find the doctors who have other information to give them. In the, in the same way that if <clears throat> in a very simplified manner, if somebody kept turning up to the local shop and asking for a certain beer, they're going to end up stocking it. Right. Eventually they're <laughs> going to get it. Right. Whether they believe in the beer or not, they're eventually going to get it. Right. I mean, you know, it's happened. It, that's happened in the organic food world. Right. The grocery stores initially were like, no, we're going to just carry our our regular old products. And eventually, you know, you started seeing the branch out of these smaller stores that started carrying organic goods and people were setting, getting away from the regular grocery stores. And then, you know, ultimately turns into Whole Foods and, you know, whatever you have there that, you know, they did these bigger organizations. So the same thing happened in the food industry too. People started having a demand for safer, better foods mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that were not going to kill us. And so it wasn't the food industry. They didn't really want to go there, but the consumer forced that. I mean, even now, when you look at some of those companies that you never thought would have gone into a health focused realm, have at least alongside their bad products, have some health focused products too. So, mm-hmm. so, so we'll see the consumer we'll, we'll start changing the realm. Um, and, you know, and that's, and, and, and that's, and that's fun. It's, you know, my patients teach me oftentimes as much as I teach myself, you know, because they come to me and like, wow, I, I heard this lecture or I, you know, I listened to this podcaster. Um, but this, you know, this kind of stuff, we, we didn't used to have this, right. We didn't used to do these podcasts and this kind of stuff. I mean, when did we start doing podcasts? It hasn't been that long. It's been a well, few there, years, there was, right? The only access you would have had to a specialist was after the point where you'd already paid and signed on for whatever it was. So right. I think that's a huge right. shift. And now you can listen to people talking I can learn, I can learn anything about anything by finding a podcast, you know, that teaches me that. So it's so accessible to get this kind of information. And then you just have to find somebody to kind of, you know, in reality work with you but but the the information is so much more accessible than it used to be you know there's goods and bads to that because there's bad information that gets spread too but you know it certainly can be a downside we've got a lot of crazy stuff going on in my local city at the moment with with protests and and silliness but uh you know i i tend to and i can tell you're very much the same dr Earth. i think we sort of lean towards the positive end of the spectrum where we can uh because yeah. there's so much goodness to be had and uh yeah, I think we're, we're living in, a, in an incredible age to, for anyone who's interested in self-exploration in pretty much any realm, which is great. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, whether that's, that's in, in the medical world, in your health world, you know, or in a tech world, right? There's, there's so many cool things there, too, that you start to learn and develop from. Absolutely. But, you know, I'll, I'll say in my mind, if you're not, you don't have health, right. You can't do any of these other things to learn anything else to, you know, all this other stuff. You've so That's in my foundation. mind, you've you got to get that right. right. It's your foundation. You have to have your brain working. You have to feel good. 
you don't feel good, you don't want to do anything else. And so, you know, I, I will still see people have to prioritize their health eventually if they're just focused on something else and they're ignoring their health, then they're not going to make it, you know? So, so it's where you still, you have to put that, I think, still at the forefront of everything else, even if it's not really your biggest passion. It still has it's, to be at least somewhat. It's, it's got to be prioritized. This, this reminds me of um, one of my favorite rappers is Action Bronson, right? He's, huh? this, he's this big guy and he's always been this gigantically overweight, larger than life right. dude. And a lot of his YouTube stuff has always been about just eating the most decadent thing, swanning around the world, rapping, smoking blunts, doing stuff like this, right? Right. And somewhere overnight, I think it must have, the catalyst must have been him having a child or something like that, right, or just a major health scare. He has massively pivoted his online content and all he does, everything he does is about workouts and weightlifting. And he's gotten so super fit. He's changed his whole, and he's managed to, I think the thing which, which is amazing me even more is this massive, than this massive pivot, pivot is he's maintained the same audience who were interested in hip hop blunts and, <laughs> and music. That's interesting, isn't it? They've I come mean, along for the journey. So right you know, to watch him get there. Right. Yeah. So he'll be and doing kettlebell swings now. On, on, <laughs> it was just crazy. While he's rapping? <laughs> yeah. Well, like in between all that stuff. So he might go have a shake now, like the world's best shake, but then he'll do like 50 reps on the kettlebells and, and talk and go and bring in personal trainers to talk about the calories and the shake and all this stuff. So I love that cross pollination. And I think people yeah, that's are becoming cool. more aware. Yeah. Right? That's fun. <laughs> Now, now tell me, Dr. Yerth, I, I was kind of, I've been back and forth with Richard, who I believe is your practice manager. It's, it's like, or like uh, an assistant. Ryan. 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 Yeah. Richard. Ryan's our, one of our marketing people. Yeah. Marketing people. Cool. Sorry, Ryan. I got your name wrong. Jeez. I balls <laughs> that up. Now, one of the Ryan's, one of the things Ryan let slip was this, uh, your interest in blue zones. Uh, and that, can you tell me a little bit about what blue zones are and why you're interested in them? Well, blue zones are interesting. And the reason they actually got their name is blue zones was simply by, because the guy who was investigating, so he was looking at places where there was extreme longevity, where people were just healthy, well into their hundreds. Right. So, you know, so areas where people lived and they were at a hundred, they were still active and healthy and involved in their community and things like that. So they have more centenarians than other places and not just centenarians, but healthy centenarians, people who were just healthier. And, and the reason they got their name was actually was, was going around the world. All he had was a blue pen. And he circled them with a blue pen. So that's how they got their name, Blue Zones. They would have been called uh, Yellow Zones if he had a yellow pen. So, you know, so that's how they got their name, you know, the name Blue Zones. And like Okinawa, Japan is one. And there's, you know, um, Sardinia. So there's places that, you know, and when he looked at, at them, you know, to, to say, okay, well, what similarities do you have across the board? Because that should help all of us. So right, these, these are say, similarities between these different, similarities between these different, different zones all over the world, right? Different, yeah, you know, mm. right. There's a place in California. So there was a lot of seventh day Adventists. And so they looked at these, these areas and they said, okay, what similarities do they have? What, you know, um, why do people in these areas that are, they're remote from each other. They're not, you know, geographically close to each other. They're ethnically very different. Why do they, you know, what, what, what similarities do they have? And, you know, the things they found, Number one, they tended to eat, you know, much more of a Mediterranean type diet. So it was a, you know, a, a lean meat, heavy on vegetables, heavy on really good oils, olive oils, avocados, you know, good fats, healthy fats. So that was one piece. Um, but the biggest thing they found ultimately uh, across the board was a sense of community. It was that mm. people took care of each other 
there was a big, you know, families lived together instead of, you know, grandma lived in one state and kids lived in another state and, you know, parents lived in another state. People lived geographically close or together and kind of took care of each other as families. Um, and, and that's a big piece, right? Once we start to get isolated, then we, we lose hope. We aren't communicating with people. You know, and so, so that was a really huge kind of eye-opener to that was that that was actually one of the biggest players. And then, you know, the other one was simply just taking more rest time, having, you know, a little more downtime. In a lot of those communities, you know, especially like in Sardinia and stuff, they're, you know, they're more equipped to turn, shutting down the world at certain times from like two o'clock to four o'clock, taking naps, things like that, stuff that we don't do, right? We're like, go, 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 go. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you know, and they tend to be you know, run a little bit more in a normal circadian rhythm where they get up when it's light and they get outside early and they are in the sun. You know, they, you know, you see the old men on the streets sitting there playing checkers with each other. Um, mm -hmm. And they tended to be back in the, you know, in the dark at night and sleep and, and, and not be so bombarded by blue lights and all the things that we are. So, so it, it seems to be some really simple things that equated to some of these longevity pieces you know, walking a lot, just, you know, just walking, you don't have to go out and exercise massively. You know, one of the things I did a whole, a whole sort of thing with my Instagram followers where we just said, okay, every night go out and walk. So after dinner, go out and walk because walking has a huge, huge, huge health benefits. And I don't do that much of it. When I go exercise, I'm like, I'm going to go, you know, go exercise. Punch it out, get back in right. the office. <laughs> and yet walking has such tremendous, tremendous health benefits, especially after you eat because you digest your food better. You, you're, you don't get a big glucose spike. But it also, you know, one of the things I was, so I, I made my whole family do it with me, right? And so we'd eat dinner and we'd all go out for a walk. And it was an amazing time. I mean, it really was. And it sort of reinforced that sort of sense of, you know, kind of community with each other. It gave us time to talk that we, you know, busy life, people don't talk to each other. So I think that's one of the biggest focuses. Because what we do is we stick our old people in a nursing home, right? I mean, how many people do you know it's who tragic. have families all together, right? And they, so they're not talking, they're not, you know, people go and visit grandma now and then. I mean, I moved home to Colorado, you know, I have five kids. I moved home to Colorado. My parents were integral, you know, until the day they died in helping raise my kids. And they lived to be, you know, my mom, 96, my dad, 92. Um, and partly because they had a big purpose. I mean, they were taking care of these kids. They were helping, they, you know, this, these people who loved them. And, you know, we we all had dinner together every, you know, twice, a, twice a week and breakfast every Sunday, you know, and so they had this, this constant interaction. And then even after they kind of got old and they needed more help, I saw how beneficial it was to my kids because, you know, now like my youngest is 14, but, you know, I, I'd watch my 14 year old make sure grandma got to the car, didn't hit her head, getting into the car and got her seatbelt on, you know, because 14 year olds don't do that. <laughs> you know, they're not thinking, you know, walking grandma to the car and opening the door for her and getting her in the car and making, and yet he, he did, cause he, he, you know, he was raised by grandma and he knew that, you know, she, now she needed him. And so there was such a beautiful piece to that. And I really think that it, you know, it was, it changed them and it changed my kids for the better to have that interaction, but people don't have that, you know? Mm. And that's, so that, that was a big piece of these, these blue zones. So we know that that's, we sort of put so much focus on you know, our exercise and our diets and our supplements and all these things that, you know, that, that are, are big, but we don't put a whole lot of focus in just that maintaining that, that sense of community and family that, that probably is a bigger player than anything else that we know we always have people to kind of love and trust and support us. Wow. That's really, really interesting. This, this whole 
it's not even just like the mental side to longevity. It's almost like the spiritual side to longevity really, isn't it? It's like, this is soul food, what we're talking about, like having friends, having relationships, knowing people are relying on you and you're relying on them. That's, you know, the really at its deepest sort of most central darkest part of life. That's like the route to life, right? This is what has spawned uh, people living all over the globe and and expansion and all these things. And it's so easy to overlook that stuff. It's like, I was talking to my parents last week when we were talking about the fact that because we live in a city, well, relatively in a city, there is no real sense of community and they don't really have a community vibe. Whereas if you go out 20 kilometers in any direction, when you're walking down the street, people say hello. People know you, right? Stop for a yeah. chat, but like there's Bill having a pie and reading the paper. You know, right? That that doesn't happen in a city, and I, I yeah. wonder how much of a you know a lost opportunity that is, and 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 it's kind of yeah a little bit sad. I think I've always felt like it's it's kind of been missing when I've lived in a city. Is is that yeah is that part of life? I know, and you know, and and COVID didn't help that. Right now, everybody mm. was really isolated. I, mean, I think one of the things that you my my parents would go to the gym every day and they actually had that that was sort of their little you know silver sneakers group at the gym so there were these people that they saw every single day at the gym right well when the gyms all shut down you know they still had us but there was not a lot of other interaction around right so they kind of lost all those people and you know and so now there was more and more isolation and I think that's you know we're still there right we're still not people are scared to go out. People are scared to mingle. People are scared to be together. So, and I think that that's, that's been a huge detriment and we've seen it depression and all the anxiety and depression, but we've seen a lot of elderly people, you know, like, like my parents dying and, you know, a little bit of piece of that is that they, they're, you know, you start to get and lose hope and, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, above everything else, if, if you don't feel purpose and love and community that all the other stuff that we can talk about for longevity, and I can go on and on and on and tell you all these cool things about longevity, isn't going to really make a difference, nor are you going to have much desire to live forever, right? That's it. That's it. Yeah, I guess that's the other point, right? You can be medically as close to perfect right. as possible, perfect, but right. if, if you don't but have, you have that, nobody, right? That passion, you have nobody to love, and you know, and mm-hmm. sort of be loved and love, you know, love, and that then then you start to you start to feel like a little bit hopeless, despite the fact that you're a perfect physical specimen, you know. I- I read this interesting stat, which I'll, I'll reel off now for you, Dr. Ruth. It's this, the Danish twin study, this is in relation to blue zones. The Danish twin study established that only t- about 20% of how long the average person, person lives is determined by genes. And I think that that's an interesting stat because so much of the narrative is around, right. oh, you look young, you got great genes. You know, that's that my entire life. I've heard that line. Yeah. Knowing that that's less than 20% of the, of the factor and considering what you're talking about, about how much community and, and lifestyle are contributing factors. I think that kind of, it gives us a little bit of a kick in the ass to, to really start thinking about the things we can optimize to live better and live longer rather than just go, eh, it's outside of our control, which is tends to be the case. Yeah, you're right. I think that's a, that's a huge piece. People you know, I hear all the time. Oh, my, you know, my dad died at 50 of a heart attack. So that's, you know, my time to you're go. Like, They're gonna, um, right, that's, that's, you know, that's that's right. I mean, I really, I have a friend who honestly, you know, every male in his family died at like 65. Oh, so God. he was like headed to, you know, he's close to 65. He's like, well, you know, I'm just going to do whatever. Cause I'm going to die at 65. And, and you do have to remember that, that you're right. I mean, genetics are just about 20%. You know, we, we, we have some things that are inborn with 
but we have what we call epigenetics, which is the way our genes are modified by what we do, actions we take. And that's how our genes are expressed. So you can take, like I said, identical twins, and they have exactly the same genetics, exactly the same, and they're expressed completely different. So if you look at the gene expression, the proteins that are expressed, they're completely different based on what they ate, you know, what they did, what they exercised, what they were exposed to, people they were around, you know, all these things are changing us. And so it is really something to remember. Any of you who have, I was born with this just kind of bad genetics. I mean, you know, I think it's a little bit of, okay, remember that's a piece. So I'm going to fight a little bit harder against that piece so I can modify it. So if I have a bad cardiovascular history, I'm certainly not going to smoke or not exercise or things like that, but, but it, it is all so modifiable. And so, so that's, that's really a critical, critical, you know, piece of, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so critical to kind of our, our overall understanding of our health. It's, it's these, again, these, these narratives, which I think the, the modern age is challenging more sometimes for the, for the worse, but often for the better is, you know, because the information is so accessible, we've just believed these things for so long, you know, you told them from such a young age, and then you realize one day that a lot of them yeah. are just, just nuts and are just there for the sake of it. Um, let's delve in a little bit to some, some uh, longevity, let's call it longevity tactics. Uh, and look, conscious that there are myriad aspects and complexities to the science of longevity, and even you even have to just scratch the surface to just surface to get deep down into something which I do not understand. So I'm going to make today's discussion as accessible as possible. And by doing that, by focusing on lifestyle, I think that's how I'll do it, which is stuff that you or I or pretty much right. Easy anyone to do, right? has varying degrees of control over. So we'll probably, I think the other, the other thing is that supplementation is so regulated in some societies and others right. not so much, right? So Australia, you can't import peptides or do anything like that. Right. Um, yeah, Australia is tough. <laughs> we're, we're super locked down and everything. And then yet we allow people to genetically modify our food to the nth degree. But <laughs> let's not get into that. Um, so let's, I'm going to start with strength training. Let's touch on this one because you're, again, I, I mentioned before, yep. I jumped on the camera and I thought this is a strong, healthy woman. <laughs> how, how to obviously it's key to you. It's something that's, that's giving you a lot of benefit, but I have a feeling that you advocate for it from a longevity context. So, so I will tell you strength training is huge and it gets way overlooked, especially as people get older. Right. I think people tend to go, okay, I'm going to go out and go for a run. I got my exercise. And if you do nothing else, it should not be running. It should be strength training. Mm. What we know now is muscle is absolutely key to longevity that you need to have muscles to live a long, healthy life. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, um, you know, muscles in and of themselves help burn fat. So you stay thinner, you have better metabolism, but muscles actually, they're actually our biggest, what we call endocrine organ. They're our biggest hormone producing organ. So muscles produce something called myokines and myokines actually have very distant effects on your brain, on your heart, on your bone. So if you have smaller muscles, you do not have as good brain activity or cardiovascular activity. Your bones will be not as dense. So we know that strength, muscle mass actually is a really, really big piece. And as people age, they get what we call sarcopenia. They lose muscle. They get more frail. And frailty is bad, okay? You know, so, so you, you absolutely, you know, what I tell people is, you know, you don't need a ton of cardio. You need some, you, but you absolutely have to strength train. And if you look at what most people do as they get older, and sometimes even younger people, is they go out and they they run, you know, they go out and they go ride their bike for 60 minutes or they, you know, 
And that's not particularly a health focused activity. There's some benefits to it. You know, so going out and probably from a mental perspective, but it's funny, I know you've had Lisa Tamati on your show and, you know, and she talks about her health when she was doing these long endurance running and how really unhealthy she oh, was. She sounded like she was killing herself. Yeah, a mess, right? Really, really unhealthy doing that stuff. People look at those people and they go, oh my God, they're in incredible shape. Well, they're not. They have you know, horrible parameters across the board. They're really not healthy. So really we need to do strength training and you have to lift kind of heavy things. You know, going to the gym and you'll see these women lifting five pounds is not gonna do it. You're not gonna put on muscle by doing it. You have to lift heavier things. You have to be strong. We absolutely know that that's important for longevity now. The thing about muscle is your kind of currency for life. So if you have bigger muscles, you've got more money to spend for a longer period of time. And then for your, for your cardio, what you really only need is, is really kind of some short bursts, what we call high intensity interval training, some HIIT training. So really about 12 minutes of cardio, but doing it in a, you know, I, I put what's called a Tabata timer on my, on my phone and you do 40 seconds, hard as you can, 20 seconds recovery. So just, you know, resting. And sometimes I'll do it on a spin bike. Sometimes I'll do it on the rower. Sometimes I'll run hills, but you do 40 seconds on 20 seconds off eight rounds, two minute warm up, three minute warm down. That's all you really have to do for cardiovascular fitness. Now I do some longer runs because I think that, that, um, it, it does help from a kind of mental and push through kind of game for me to do that. I used to be, I used to do a lot more running, but I, I, you know, I don't do that as much anymore because I've learned more. So I think, you know, it's fine. If you love going out and running, go out and run, do what you like, but you've got to add strength training into that too. So I, I will say that, that really is a, a huge piece that you, you can't ignore any of your listeners who are saying, Oh, I exercise, but they don't go lift weights. They don't go lift heavy things you're not going to get the same wow. benefits. Weights, weights are the grail. So weights are. if we were, let's talk about say Pilates, for example, which is kind of sits in between like a strength training type thing, but it's not a heavy load training type thing. It's more like muscle you, focus. Is that yeah, but you can do relatively heavy load with even body weights, right? So if you mm -hmm. think about some of the things you do with Pilates, where you are, you know, doing one-legged push-offs and things like yeah, that. Some of that stuff. Is that you, some of that stuff. I mean, you're lifting your entire body load, and sometimes in a, you know, in in in, in a mechanical position that's really, really loading the muscle. So you know, so you can lift pretty heavy loads even with just body load. I mean, push-ups is an example, right? I mean, push-ups are hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, and so by by doing push-ups, am I lifting any? Am I lifting a barbell above my chest? No, but I am lifting a pretty substantial amount of my body weight to do a push-up, So I will say that Pilates does fall into, you know, a, a, you can get some pretty good strength training with Pilates, depending on the type of Pilates you do. I love Pilates for its core balance, balance work. It's flexibility. I do love it for that. I think if you can core, you know, and again, some of the Pilates classes really do do a little bit more of a strength focus to it. Like there's some extreme Pilates kind of things that you really are getting a pretty good strength workout from those. So I think okay. that you can get that. I think you can get that even with yoga too, with some, you know, if you look at, you know, you're doing arm balances and things like that with yoga, you can get a pretty, you know, if you're doing crow pose, it's a pretty big load on your shoulders and arms. So I don't think you have to go necessarily go to the gym. There's tons of stuff. You know, there's, there's kind of the prisoner workout. There's tons of stuff you can do sitting in your four by four room. If that's all you have to do, you know, which everybody had to learn how to do during COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Cause our gyms were all shut down and we just figured out what to do with bands and things like that. So don't think you have to go to the gym and, you know, necessarily massively with huge dumbbells and barbells. You can do a lot of that, but you've got to load muscles with either a lot of body weight or using bands or things like that. So you've got to load the muscle. All right. So the quick win, I reckon reading between the lines here, the easy wins are body weight training, push-ups, dips, squats, that sort of stuff. Right, exactly. Yep. 
Yeah. Right. And don't never give yeah. up on that stuff. Doesn't matter never how old you get. I don't care how old you get. Right. I don't wow. care how old you get. You've got to keep doing it. In fact, it becomes more and more important as we age to do that. Because cool. if you lose muscle you, and become frail, you, you can't. I mean, we're, we're learning more and more of this kind of word frailty that, that, that frailty is a bad thing, right? To be more frail, you have to be able to endure all the crap that gets thrown at you. So if you, you know, something bad happens, you trip and fall, you're not going to hurt yourself. I think bad things are going to happen. The world's always out to destroy us, but that, you know, you've got to be able to, to persevere through that. And so stronger you are, the better you can do that. So I think right. that, you know, that that's kind of a, a, a number one, you've got to strength train. You can't just rely on aerobic exercise. If you're just getting your bike and you're getting on that spin bike every day for 30 minutes, it's not enough. So, you know, but if you get off the spin bike and then do some push-ups and some sit-ups and some uh, wall squats and things like that, then you're probably going to get some pretty good benefit from that. Cool. Okay. I'm going to shotgun across to, to sleep. Let's talk about sleep for a little bit. A nap's okay. Can I nap or is it potentially yeah, going to mess know, naps, with my... Yeah, no, actually, you know, naps, naps are good. Really, if you take them longer than about 20 minutes, it seems to potentially mess with circadian rhythm a little bit. Okay. But a 20 sure, minutes, if you're a really good 20 minute power napper, Two hours uh, they actually have some no. benefit, you know, right. Probably not. Um, Cause that probably does start to screw up your circadian rhythm. I mean, yeah. really it is one of the, uh, you know, circadian rhythm disease is one of the big beings of our world today, you know, and, and I'm guilty of this too. So you think about how we're designed, we're designed to be up when it's light outside, you know, barefoot, getting, getting earth, you know, the ground. And, and then, you know, as the day gets darker, getting away from the light and, then going to bed as soon as it's dark and staying asleep until it's light again. But we don't do that anymore, right? You know, people aren't usually up at the crack of dawn. They don't go outside. They head up to their computer. And then they are not outside all day. So they're in front of these blue lights all day, right? After about four o'clock, being in front of the blue light is bad, changing my entire brain. And so unless I'm using my blue light blocking glasses and then subsequently completely blocking out blue light as the night gets later, later and then getting all light out, you know, so it's completely dark to sleep, which most of us don't do either because we have ambient lights coming in from everywhere. So mm -hmm. if you really want to look at, you know, one of the other big pieces to health is restoring circadian rhythm, which means being in the light during the day, you know, waking up, waking up, getting outside, even if it's only for 10 minutes, go outside barefoot and stand outside barefoot unless it's freezing cold, but, you know, but try and get outside at least for a few minutes in the light of the day. And then, and then using your, you know, if, if you if you can't be outside at all during the day, then you can use you know, what are called happy lamps. You can use lamps that kind of simulate being being in the light, and then using blue blocking glasses as the day gets later, right when you're, we're not supposed to be exposed to these this blue light, which is confusing our brains. We know that this blue light exposure in the afternoon and later evenings is really damaging. Yet we all are at our computers and our TVs and our cell phones, so you've got to use blue light blocking glasses. And if you're really gig out in this stuff, you go into a more orange, you know, so can you see the yellow lens glasses, which are partially blocking blue light. And then as the day gets later, you go into an orange lens um, to really completely block blue light. Now it gets, you know, you can get scary extreme with this stuff, but if you really want to, to, to get somebody back into a really balanced circadian rhythm, sometimes you have to do that. You know, none of us for people who are like, I've got major sleep disorder. I made major sleep disorder. Right. And, mm -hmm. or they're very sick. I mean, if you look at what they, they did this great study where they looked at people in the hospital, which is the most screw up you can do to somebody's circadian rhythm, right? All night long, the lights are on, people are coming out of the room to do vital signs. And, mm -hmm. and 
and people don't do well, right? They, they have heart attacks and they actually don't recover. So they actually did an experiment where they actually really, they turned the lights off at night. And they did not bother the people while they're sleeping and they did much, much better. Their outcomes after a heart attack or after a surgery were considerably better when they actually replicated more of a normal circadian rhythm for these people in the hospital. Mm. We still don't do it, but the experiment showed we should. Um, you know, but it doesn't really fit with our design. I mean, life, unfortunately, doesn't fit with, with what we're supposed to do. So as many times as you can go camping, do things that you know, get you back into what we should be doing, which is, what do you do when you're camping? Right. I mean, there's nothing to do after a certain point. I mean, you're around the fire, you get a few, some more, at thing. some point there's all there is to do to go sleep. Right. It's like, well, I just want to go to sleep now. You know? Now we have too many distractions. So, but circadian rhythm balances. That's why people who are night shift workers have significantly higher rates of cancer, heart disease, you know, because it's very hard to restore circadian rhythm. So he's a night shift worker. Um, it's mm -hmm. tough. So, you know, I, I was listening to a, um, a lecture by a guy who's a big circadian rhythm guy. And somebody asked the question, well, you know, what do I do if I'm a night shift worker? And he said, get another job. I mean, yeah, job, you know, <laughs> it's really hard to fix those people. Um, yeah. So I will say, you know, exercise, restoring circadian rhythm. If you can, if you can truly restore circadian rhythm, and I'm sure you're guilty. I'm, I'm horrible. I mean, that's, it's, you know, I, I will work and write and research late at night, you know, because I get home and that's my time to do it. Things are quiet. I can actually sit and do some research. So I'm, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, still up looking at my computer. And then I'm always looking through my, you know, last little cell phone things before I go to bed, you know, and then there's lights coming from everywhere. So I, I, I can preach it. I'm, I'm not the best at it yet either. It's one of my things I need to work on, but it's, it, it's a big point. I think that that, you know, that's going to fall into circadian rhythm disease is probably up there as you can restore circadian rhythm. You're going to fix a whole lot of problems. And again, accessible to all of us, you know, like right. you can be victim to this and just put up with it and go, oh, well, my sleep sucks. I'm just a bad sleeper. Or you right. can start right. progressively can try trying try things, you know, yeah. I, I've gone through bad patches myself, like for extended periods, especially when I was uh, training Muay Thai late in the evening, yeah. I found that I came home too hyped up and wouldn't sleep so for hours or wake up in the middle of the night, just too much for the system. Right. And I, I went down this path of sleep restriction. So I would start, I'm not allowed myself to go to sleep until like 1am. I started at 1am and then get up at 7 a.m. So I would be tired for a stretch. And then I'd bring it in 30 minutes, in 30 minutes. So I'd do 12, 30, then do 12. And I did, I did that over sort of a two-week period. And I tried everything else. I tried supplementation and sorts of stuff. And that one thing has proven to be a reliable reset for my system that works every time. Like if I start really? to get out of whack, I go to this sleep restriction process and it, and it works. So I, shout outs to that, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Uh, I'm going to ask you a guest question, Dr. Ruth. So I reached out to uh, Sylvie von Douglas Itu, who is a past guest on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. And she happens to have the total, or the greatest total amount of professional Muay Thai fights of all time with 268 and counting. And she's the IPCC world champion. So basically she's a bad ass. Yeah. Now, Sylvie's always blogging, writing interesting stuff. Uh, she's got a lot of interesting projects on the go. And one of the things she tinkers with quite, quite often is changing her diet um, to try and, I guess, improve performance is her goal. Mm -hmm. She wants longevity and performance because, you know, right. 
if you've even seen one Muay Thai fight and the amount of damage that happens to the bottom in that, yep. the body in that, she's done 268. We're talking insane amounts of damage that she is yeah. taking and then recovering from again and again and again. Now, being the smart lady that she is, she's obviously concerned with brain health. Now, I also know that this may not be your specialist field of, of interest, Dr. Yerth, but I thought I'd run it past you because I think it's kind of interesting. So she said, in Dr. Yerth's professional opinion, can a ketosis diet help protect the brain and or repair the brain injuries in contact sports? So Dr. Yerth, could you talk a little bit about maybe first uh, what ketosis is before we kind of get into this? So, yeah, and, you know, and we do do tons and tons with brain health because you know, obviously you, if your brain goes, nothing else matters, right? And so we actually do have a passion for kind of brain health and we actually do a lot here in our clinic with sort of uh, working with our patients on that and, you know, working with patients with brain injuries and, and um, traumatic brain injuries and a lot of athletes who, you know, football players and people like that who do get hit. So, you know, it, it is, a, it is kind of a passion of mine. I think it's, it's a big focus. And when Brian Graham, who runs my peptide program is actually did a lot of Muay Thai. And so he's, you know, so he's, and he still watches all those videos all the time, which I can't watch because <laughs> I love those um, videos. <laughs> It's just too, like I watch them get hit and I'm like, oh God. Oh God. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, basically when our bodies are, usually our bodies are going, are, you know, are, are using glucose as fuel. So mm -hmm. you're eating carbohydrates using glucose as fuel. If you, if you, if you basically cut out all carbohydrates and you start using fat as fuel, then that's what gets your body starts producing ketones. And, and that is a really good state for a few things for cancer fighting. It is a really good state for brain health. So we know that that putting people into a more ketotic state when they're trying to recover from a traumatic brain injury um, or a stroke, uh, we know that for cancer, putting people into a, in, into ketosis is really helpful because cancer cancer loves loves glucose. So uh, using fat as fuel instead. So once you cut out all your carbohydrates and you start having to turn to fats for fuels and producing ketones that there's some significant health benefits. And you can take exogenous ketones as well and sort of help some of that, but probably producing your own ketones by cutting, you know, going to a, a very, very low carb or zero carb kind of diet is the best way to get your body into ketosis. So I, I do think Sylvia that that is a, it is a really beneficial thing for brain health to do that. My problem with ketosis is that when you completely lose metabolic flexibility, there's some downsides. So if you always stay on a ketotic diet, so if you're always, and there's people who do this, right? They're always, I have a friend who's passionate about her ketos, keto, ketotic diet. You actually start to, what they've shown is that over time, at least in mice, they actually start to age a little bit more rapidly. So mm -hmm. it may well be that the best thing to do is to go back and forth out of this kind of diet and keep what we call metabolic flexibility. Keep your body still able to move out of, the state back into, into being able to process carbohydrates well. And if you always stay in ketosis, there may be some negatives of it over time. I think acutely, there's some huge benefits. You know, it's great for fat loss. It's, it's, it's good for brain health. Again, it's good for cancer fighting. So there's a lot of diseases that we, we like people in a ketotic state. What I usually recommend is doing that for maybe 12 weeks and then getting out of that state and actually going back into where you're adding some carbs in. You know, much like what I said with training, diet is the same that we really are designed for, for flexibility and our bodies don't like to adapt to one thing all the time. So I think you can use ketosis. Like if you, if you've just 
had a big fight and you're, you have this kind of, you know, brain damage, things like that. You can use it during that period of time. Then you should try and get out of it after about 12 weeks where you actually add carbs and not a massive, you know, you eat nothing but cakes, but adding some, some, you know, percentage, at least 20% of your diet back in as carbohydrates, because that's going to actually probably in the long run help with longevity. Um, so we actually always sort of think in 12 week cycles with our patients, when we're doing things with diet, exercise, supplements, everything like that, we always kind of think of these 12 week cycles, almost seasonal, right? Where we'll put them into a, a, a very sort of very, very, very low carb diet for a while. And, and some people, if I'm really trying to treat disease, I'll do that for, you know, for, for 12 to 16 weeks. Then we bring them out of it to a lower carb and sometimes even pushing the, the carb a little bit higher for a period of time. And, and that seems to be the best way to kind of keep the body in a healthful state. Um, is to kind of think about metabolic flexibility and using these diets in, in, in periodic fashions. Going back to our earlier discussion, uh, Dr. Yerth, it's just like you were talking about in another context, another example where changing things up is ultimately better for you than just doing the same thing, same thing again and over again and over and over again. again. Yep. And that's, that seems to be very true with diet. Mm. You know, people are very married to their diet theories. And so... <laughs> You know, you can argue with the people like, like I said, I have a friend who- People get you know, aggressive she, about it. They get very aggressive about their diets, right? And, you know, so it's a very hard thing to argue about. But I, I don't think anybody can really, you know, when you look at the studies, and again, we don't really have the long-term studies yet. We haven't really followed, you know, we haven't followed the people who have been staying in these, on these, these old, you know, ketotic diets for 30 years. We don't have that outcome yet. But we we can we could look at what happens in mice and the outcome isn't great. So you know if we if we if we look at what potentially will happen in humans, we're probably going to see those people age a little bit more rapidly at some point. It might not be right now. They look pretty good right now, but it might be later on. Mm. So I, I think that's the best way to look at that is sort of utilize that. I think it's really hard because the other thing that we really know um, is really prolongevity is caloric restriction. So eating fewer calories, you live longer. Uh, across the board, nobody will deny that. That, so that this is the fasting realm we're talking about. Yeah, this is kind of that fasting realm, cool. you know. And so, and so, and then it's hard. People, somebody like you, who are these, these very high-level competitive athletes, how do you do that in the face of I've got to build tons of muscle and be really, really strong? So, um, so that always is a little bit more difficult. I find that hard myself. If I'm fasting, you know, you, you know, and and you, you want to lift hard weights and you want to protein load afterwards for muscle building. So the I've same heard of several people with, bailing you know, on it because of that. They just don't right. feel they have the energy to perform right. anymore. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, I almost always work out in a fasted state, but then you want to refeed if you really want to build muscle. So I, I think the same thing's true with fasting. It's one of those things where go through periods of time where you actually do, where you, you are going to be in a little bit less of a build state where I do drop my protein down, maybe a little bit where I'm going a little bit more carb, you know, and, 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 and those periods of time, maybe I can do a little bit more fasting. I think what maybe works better usually for this group is to not do longer fasts, to maybe just do more um, what we call time-restricted eating, where you just, you know, I only eat within an eight-hour window, you know, and depending on what your training schedule is, sometimes even maybe a 10-hour window, but, but you're only eating with a window instead of going through 24-hour fasts, things like that. I think if you're really training hard to try and put a 24-hour fast on people who are trying to really train hard and perform at their best is difficult. What we know is that when we fast, we cause what's called autophagy. We get rid of bad cells. So as we age, one of the things that we've sort of learned that happens with aging is we start building up these damaged cells. 
And these damaged cells, we call them zombie cells. They produce these proteins called senescent associated secretory phenotype proteins. And those proteins actually damage the cells around them. That's why they're called zombie cells. So now one zombie, now there's five zombies, now there's 10 zombies, now there's 20 zombies. So basically when you fast, cells die. You kill off the bad cells and you start with a clean slate. So now when you refeed, a lot of the power of fasting is the refeed. When you refeed, now you get this power to all these good cells. Good cells grow. We have nice, healthy cells and things do well. So, so a lot of the power of fasting is in the refeed afterwards, getting some protein in afterwards and refeed. So nobody really knows. And there's a lot of argument in the fasting world. How long does that take to really get rid of all these bad cells? You know, some people say it has to be 72 hours. And I'd be like, no, even 16 hours, you see that. So the argument in that fasting world is still, I don't think, well decided. I read a lot of that literature and, you know, and, and Walter Longo, who's one of the big people with fasting, mm -hmm. he's like, well, you need 72 hours. And I feel like, well, actually, you can see some of that even in 16 hours, you can see that. So I think we don't know the right answer to that. And I think it's probably going to be a little bit individual to what people's needs are. So I don't like to ever project that, you know, to say, you know, somebody who's trying to really train hard for me to tell them you should do a 72 hour fast is probably not going to work. It's not well. going to compute. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. So I think that, that, but we do know that going through periods of time where you're eating less, even if they're, you know, not really long extended periods of time, nobody with all the arguments in the longevity world, nobody will argue that that is not a pro-longevity right you know, piece it's, it's pretty much conclusive like if you yeah, decide conclusive, right. if you can adjust your life to eat less food even if that's just right. skipping breakfast twice a week right, right that right, is right. going to have benefits exactly for you. right even if you do that a couple of days a week exactly that you which is not that hard to do honestly no. right it's just not that hard to not eat until one o'clock in the afternoon and then do your eating window like one to six something the like first that, one know? is i think the first the first anything's hard for anyone in any context right it's like because yeah. you've you've set these beliefs not in how challenging it's going to be and you do it once and it's so easy that and you're like, like oh it's not, yeah momentum done yeah so, yeah yeah that's good yeah i mean you know I, I will periodically i'll do a three or four day fast but you know i don't I, you know I, I don't i don't do a lot i pretty regularly follow a 16 8 but i don't do that every day either because if i'm doing a super super hard training day i do want to do a little bit you know, i'll do a protein shake so I will break a fast earlier because I work out earlier in the morning, you know, so, so I, I vary that up depending on my goals, but I think if you just think this call it kind of, you know, always using a little bit of variety and basing life a little bit. And I, like I said, think seasonally, you know, you got winter, spring, summer, fall, you know, and think about these buildups and breakdown periods of time and you sort of train that way and you eat that way. I think that that, that goes a long way to helping kind of health is keeping, keeping us in, in the sort of, and it's more doable, right? It's just, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more doable than think I'm never going to eat a carb again. I mean, <laughs> that's, me, that's so unpleasant. Sad. I mean, I like my carbs. Yeah, I, you know, I, <laughs> I want some carbs now. Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not for that group. I think, yeah, you got to have some moderation and there's got to be some joy. <laughs> uh, what I'm going to ask you one, a couple of last questions, Dr. Yerth, and then I'll let you go. I'm just, I just want to get this last bit in because I think it sits in the lifestyle realm and it's accessible to most of us, unless you're really unlucky. So let's talk about sex for a second. So sex, is it, is it good for longevity, bad for longevity? And is it different for men and women as to how much sex we should be having? 
No, sex is really good for longevity. I mean, tons of yes. good stuff happens when you have sex, you know, sex for, for both men and women, you know, orgasms Terrific. create tons of, of, you know, dopamine in our brains, which is really good. We, you know, we make a lot of oxytocin when we're in love with somebody, when we have sex, we make oxytocin is muscle building. It's, you know, oxytocin is the hormone we make when we're in love or it's the hormone we make when a ton, when we have babies, right. And you make tons, of, that, that's what initiates labor. And you make tons of oxytocin when you have a baby. And so you immediately, you know, look at this baby and fall in love, but it's, it's, Oxytocin is also anabolic, helps with muscle building. We actually use it as an anabolic hormone in people. And so, so it has all these benefits. So when, when we have sex, when we, when we are in love with somebody, we do produce tons of oxytocin. So, so there's huge benefits, I think, you know, and just that, that kind of closeness to people, right? Um, you know, do men or women need more sex? Well, you know, men are run on testosterone. Women are a lot more complex. I mean, you know, as sure. I always, you know, it, it's hard, you know, women's sex drive is very linked a lot more to the brain. And if, the house is dirty and the kids need something and, you know, and there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Their brains don't want to have sex. We're not, we're not designed that way. The entire world could be on fire and guys would still want to have sex. Definitely. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, so it's always the priorities. It's just right up there. It's, right, it's right up there. Right. Exactly. It's like, you know, but honey, the house is on fire, you know, and, and that's always a struggle, right? That's, that tends to be particularly as women get, you know, get, get a little bit older and, you know, they're out of childbearing age and the brain sort of loses that desire because women really want to have sex to have babies. That's the main sort of driving factor. And so once the brain kind of, and it's where, you know, hormones help because it gets the brain a little bit, a little bit better, but it, it, that is probably one of the more difficult things I think for couples is that, that, that imbalance in sex drive. I do, I deal with that all the time with my couples. Uh, well, I'll put a guy on some testosterone because their testosterone is low. And the wife's like, Oh my God, well now he wants to have sex all the time. And I can't deal with this. <laughs> you know. been too um, <laughs> but there's, there's no doubt that sex has huge health benefits and, you know, and well-being benefits. And, and, and there may be a piece that when, when we lose the desire to have sex, that there's something wrong, right. That, that, that either we're stress has gotten the best of us or our hormones have gotten the best of us that we're kind of edging into that other side of, you know, we're, we're heading down a slope of something's not right because mm -hmm. we're, we're, I mean, we're, in reality, we're, we are designed to procreate, you know, that's sort of what our, our mission was here on the world, right. was to procreate. I'm and just, I'm glad you like to say we've gotten beyond that, but <laughs> for a lot of people, it has not really changed. I'm glad you didn't come on here, Dr. Earth, and suggest like month long sex fasts or something like that to add half a minute to your long lifetime. <laughs> like, this is not going to go well. But uh, that, that is, you answered that very well. And I really, I've had an excellent time this morning, Dr. Earth. I've just had a ball. That's been so informative. Thank you very much uh, for being chatting. on my show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Do, do you have right. any shout outs or anything that you'd like me to, uh, where would you like people to go to find out more about you or anything of the work you're doing? Well, and kind of, you know, for, for your listeners who, you know, one of the, one of our things is kind of exactly what you've been talking about is how do I simply start this journey on kind of going into more of a longevity, you know, health focus. And, you know, it's funny when you talk about longevity, people are like, well, I don't want to live forever. And I'm like, well, you know, why? If I can be healthy, I want to live the, the cool stuff we could see if we could live forever. I mean, it'd be amazing. You know, I think when people think about living forever, they think about being frail little people. But if you can be super healthy and you can well, live then well forever, yeah, that's a live different well thing. forever, mm -hmm. you know, or at least until you want to die and then you can stop everything. But, you know, so, so, but, but this journey is a little difficult. So we put together this, this sort of course called what to fix first that people can go, they can go to BLI.academy um, and sign up for this what to fix course course. And it, it kind of walks through exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Eat this, do this, do these for circadian rhythm. These are the very basics. They're going to start you down that road because I think there's this world of, you know, Oh, what supplements do I take? And I need my red light and my blah, blah, blah. You know, 
gets so overwhelming. So we really tried to put this course together to just help people kind of walk down that road. So people can sign up for that course. It's, you know, it's like, I don't know, four or five lectures, but it really you know, talks about circadian rhythm, exactly the things you and I talked about now. And, um, and then BLI.academy is sort of our learning site because, you know, as we talked about trying to train other doctors doesn't work. So we're trying to train people to be, to understand this so that they can take their health into their own hands and then they can find a doctor to work with that will work with them. But, but you guys have got to take it into your own hands because if you rely on the doctors to do it, they're going to not, not get you there. And, so and what, as you said, Dr. Yerth, the system is not set up for them to get you there. If you've got a 15 right. minute consultation, right. how can it's, they possibly, it's, work. it's counterintuitive, right? Exactly. It's counterintuitive. So you guys, right. so that's what so we put BLI.academy together. We're kind of training people, but we're training them in a very scientific fashion instead of like, all your news you're getting off of Instagram. Instead, go to a place where we're trying to sort of delve through the scientific data, present it to you, kind of weed it through, present you the good data so you guys can learn some of this stuff and, you know, and, and then teach other people. And so eventually that, that word spreads with around the consumer, as we talked about, we can get, we can maybe change the world eventually. We hope. I love it. Thank you again, Dr. Yer. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. You can find all the latest happenings on the website, doingepicstuff.com or our Instagram, Instagram forward slash doingepicstuff. We out.